everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Searchers Podcast. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, Chris. Hey, everybody. And no Kevin this week, but luckily, since we are recording on Australia Day, we uh, we have a special guest, Mr. Nick Langdon. I thought we agreed that no more accents. <laughs> All the way from <laughs> Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. I've, been, I've been trying to teach... Um, teach Ben how to pronounce Melbourne correctly, like a local. Anyway, thanks for inviting me. Great to be back. Yeah, of course. Once again, we have the the famous Australian to come teach us some movies. And so you guys need to cue me in on this, key me in on this. Who wanted to do this movie and why? Chris. Well, this has been in the, this has been in the works for like what? Six or seven, eight months now or something like that. Somewhere around there. And it was a, casual conversation as always i might not remember exactly how this started but prince of the city came up in in conversation maybe Sydney lumet when we watched death trap nick maybe that's how that came up i think that might be it Unless, too because we were talking about yeah you and i both being fans of Sydney lumet and i think you were trying to work your way through his filmography if that's correct that sounds about right. It's he's been a director I've been on and off again. Um, I haven't pursued his work as hard as I as I once did, and I, and I'm only around twenty films of his scene, and he has a lot more. I just I haven't I haven't kept up with it, I guess. But we we did talk about it when we saw Death Trap. I think that's when it everything started to come back, and we got on Prince of the City because. I probably said it was one of my favorites by him and you and I wanted to collab on it and um, because you haven't seen it. And again, I said it was one of my favorites. And then June of 2023, Mr. Tree Williams goes and dies in a motorcycle accident. So we were like, Oh, we, we have to see this film now. And uh, we looped Ben in, and then six months, seven months in the making, and we are finally here doing this episode in 2024. Well, we did do Dead Heat, so we we gave him his his due. He's getting that's true. He's getting two times uh, the tribute. Two times. So it's all good. But yeah, yes. so that's the really poor story on my end about how story, we bro. got here. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> The accent makes it better every time. <laughs> That's why so we Prin- had Nick on. Prince of the City, 1981. Uh, Chris, you've seen it before. This is Nick's first time, my first time. I bought the Blu-ray because of you, so you owe me money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was on sale, I think, on Amazon, so it's all good. But yeah, this movie... I'll let I'll let Chris describe what it's about, but... Uh, I've heard a lot about this movie over the last year or two and just getting more into Letterboxd lore, if that's a thing, I guess. Um, but a lot of people like this movie. It's popular. I mean, relatively popular. Yeah. It's still, like, still underseen for, I guess, the, the director. But I guess the Which interesting thing to start, with, to start with just really quickly is that it really starts with Serpico, this film, doesn't it? If we're talking a sort of in broader terms about Sidney Lumet, about how yes. he obviously made the very famous 1973 film about corruption in the New York City Police Department and then 
eight years later, in 1981, he's back doing the same subject matter, albeit in a very different way. And it's interesting reading up on it that he actually was sort of wanting to almost atone for some of the ways that he portrayed the NYPD in Serpico, a very sort of black and white view of police corruption where you've got this, you know, heroic guy, Frank Serpico, against all of these, you know, officers on the take. Uh, so that's, I think, maybe might be an interesting place to start is, you know, looking at, again, how the film came about. I think that's an excellent point, Nick. And when I when I think of Sidney Lumet, he has these tropes that gravitate toward American law specifically. And it could be in the courtroom or it can be about the actual cop detective work. And that that's throughout his filmography. You, you go to 12 Angry Men or he did the verdict right after Prince of the City, I believe. The yeah. examples are there. And again, you said Serpico. Um so it's an interesting, it was something that fascinated him clearly. And I think you can, and you, either of you guys can correct me on this because I'm not familiar. I'm going to make a comparison here because I've read a little bit about Ingmar Bergman and I haven't seen too many of Bergman's films, but as a over generalization, Bergman was someone who could handle the content of his films um, by still being um an agnostic like he wasn't someone who actually like believed i don't know if he believed in god or not but he covered those topics and he was somebody who um could cover the topic sort of straddling the lines if you will and Cine lumet to me feels like he's doing the same thing but with american law so like he's he's not really for one side he's just he wants us to observe all of the players in this world and how all of these things affect them. Yeah, and that might be an evolution of his um, sort of filmmaking and, the, and his maturity in tackling these themes because, of course, 12 Angry Men was his first film and it's a great film about justice, as you know, but it's sort of very much there's, you know, the heroic juror who's correct and then everybody else who's wrong. Debatable. And, well, sort of. <laughs> and uh, there is this sort of... This this tug of war uh, about you know trying to get to the truth in capital letters, mm -hmm. shining big lights, and again that's in Serpico it's much more black and white. Whereas I think what we might appreciate here, or some of us will appreciate who like moral ambiguity, is that you know th there's all the complexities of human behaviour and the corrupting uh, in abilities of institutions. Uh, the, the and the, the sort of intersection between human nature, human greed, and these opportunities for getting ahead in life through taking some of the easy way or these very difficult moral quandaries. Maybe we can talk about that a bit later, about some of the real questions the film's asking about what really counts as justice. And this is, right. again, this is just really quickly... Um, We've been also watching a few classic westerns of lately, the sort of three of us and some other people, and been talking about this and this idea of like what happened to the American western in the 1970s when it really was replaced by the police movie. And John Wayne gave the famous quote that I dug up when I was uh, looking at uh, looking up him, and he was talking about Dirty Harry and saying that when he saw Dirty Harry, a role that he turned down, he recognised the same sort of character he'd played, the 
the lawman who might cross the line but always stood up for justice. And so he might rough up some people along the way and break all sorts of rules, but he's doing it in the name of a higher cause. And that's ultimately, I think, the main conflict that really drives Prince of the City is how do you uphold the law Some or, or not even uphold the law, how do you do what is best for the city and for humanity even if you have to break all sorts of rules and even laws along the way, smaller laws, to create a greater justice. Yeah, and it's almost like what what it's the it's posing the question, as you say, what you can do for the community and other people and serving justice, but also what you can do for yourself. It's it's a balancing act between the two, right? Yeah. Which is Absolutely. basically life, right? Yes. Ba- balancing yes. act. I mean, I- Yes. And, and, and sorry, Ben, you can speak in a second, but going off of Nick's point, I just want to say that I think you're making an interesting connection to what would become the, the craze in the seventies with the Poliziotesis and, and that's overseas, but then also like Charles Bronson and Burt Reynolds taking over like the stardom of the seventies and what those characters changed and transformed in the cinema landscape. Yeah, um, Polizio Stesci, I think most people know them, into Italian cop films, and they were very much inspired by, you know, Dirty Harry and uh, the French yes. connection. But in uh, also t- looking at the way that, especially in Italy, that there was corrupt institutions and organised crime, and again, many of the same things that Lumet's examining here. So, yeah, that moral ambiguity, that those grey areas that we get into really sort of almost epitomised 1970s filmmaking. And this movie... Is released in eighty one, but you could this it could have been could have came out in nineteen seventy five. I mean, it's yes, it's a seventies cop movie that came out in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, it's like how um, First Blood is a seventies story that came out in nineteen eighty two, but it was in development all throughout the seventies. It's sort of like you know the definitive post Vietnam film, but it was delayed because it was handed off between a bunch of people, including our favorite John Frankenheimer, actually. But then it came right. out in eighty two. Uh, so it, it feels like this one, like a, a film slightly out of time. To me, like Prince of the City, it almost feels like the culmination of 1970s, you know, American crime cinema. It just feels like everything's sort of leading up to this grand statement of, you know, 168 minutes of these, again, difficult and, moral questions in scummy streets. <laughs> and the movie probably came out, I mean, Production details aside, it came out too late because it was commercially not successful. Uh, Prince of the City, that is, and I think people were just kind of moving on to the the big action movies in the eighties. And for whatever reason, this movie. Well, maybe I'll throw in my two cents and say sometimes people don't like three hour cop movies. <laughs> Which yes, time is a big. I big I will I will say this movie felt every minute. <laughs> of three hours it was long but it was i don't know if he was going for this because i don't think lumet does do he's not like a david lean epic kind of guy but it feels like a police epic right but it's not it's really following one guy mostly but he has his partners that are involved throughout the whole thing for most of it at least um so it, it feels like an epic to me and that's what that's what that, that's the kind of pacing you get in an epic movie it's just not going to be quick right Right. 
Yeah, and, so, and it's important. It's important for Lumet to take his time with the with this character, though, because in order to show us all of the shades of gray, you need to see you need to see everything that he shows us. It's it's a very methodical breakdown of Treat Williams's character. Yeah, and I, and I say epic, um, even though I, even though I do say that it is a very low key kind of feeling movie like it's not like big and flashy it's definitely more gritty it's more grounded um and i think that probably has to do with uh sydney lumet said this was the only time in his career that he cast 50 percent of the cast wasn't an actor they were just random people like off the street so i don't know if that's because you know that's why it feels that way to me but well and he also, I think a lot of his, I've only seen, this is my fifth movie, so I haven't seen a lot, but I feel like he kind of gravitates to some sort of stage play in almost every movie he makes where it's very much like you could just take the same thing he just made and put it on a, a stage and it it's the same, you're going to, it's not going to be the same, you know, experience, but the stories could be the same, right? I definitely agree with that. And and it could be that Lumet, like um, Chris and I's favourite John Frankenheimer, he had that background in live television in the 1950s. Um, and I agree with you, like Death Trap that we were just talking about before, that was originally a play. Uh, Twelve Angry Men, that's one room, that's the, that's a play for you. Uh, even something like The Verdict, yeah, there's other scenes around there, but that whole courtroom, like you could put that on the stage without too much right. trouble, you know. Uh, and I definitely agree with that. And again, this is very much a, you know, it's almost three hours of pretty much men in rooms talking, but he does make it wonderfully cinematic. And I think that's uh, the ability that Lumet has. And what was actually so fascinating about the background, not even just talking about like the source novel and the history, but the fact that this was originally being developed by Brian De Palma, which I find yes. absolutely head scratching, while at the same time, Sidney Lumet was working on a remake of Scarface. And they ended up through some very convoluted processes swapping projects. And it, it it just, I can't see this at all as a De Palma film because, you know, Scarface, it's that very, if this is like the last sort of one of the last 70s movies, Scarface is like the most 80s movie or ever, basically. And De Palma, who I love, has that real kind of operatic theatrical approach to filmmaking that is so invigorating when but even when he's doing crime films like scarface or like carlito's way which is an amazing film more people need to see it's like the big set pieces and the really heightened emotions whereas lumet as we're saying it's more grounded it's more like stage drama it's a lot it's dialogue driven and I just can't imagine brian de palma's version of prince of the city just as i can't really imagine sydney lumet's 80s remake of Scarface. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. That is interesting. It, it's certainly a trope of Lumet. Like it's it's fascinating because you look at Lumet's other trope, which was he loved filming New York City, hmm. and um, that sort of is counterintuitive to how he liked doing things in one room or like one location. Um, I guess it makes sense if one location was to be New York City, and then the whole film took place in New York City, but that idea where it would take place in a room, but he would still take setting shots of like skyscrapers and stuff. Um, that is, that is sort of interesting too, but also having that play with that staginess, it's, it's very interesting. And he, he's, he was very good at it. 
he, he could make it work. And New York City was always a character in most of his films. In The Verdict, it was actually Boston, um, which he still makes that work, even though most of the film is inside. And that, um, I don't remember what the building's called, but the, the building that Lumet and production company found for Prince of the City, they actually, it was, you know, that that one scene in the beginning where it's just this empty office and mm. there's a huge long, it's just, it's like completely empty. It, it looks run down. Like that's probably how they found it. And then they updated that exact same room multiple times. Some of the DC offices were filmed in that building. Like he just used that entire, I, I don't know if he had one floor or whatever, but he used it very economically, which is impressive. Um, Cause maybe that's, yes. just a, maybe that's a function of new Hollywood and, not being in the studio system and, but they kind of use that building as a studio set, right? I mean, they're switching, they're just camouflaging it for whatever they needed it for. Yeah. I mean, this film actually cost like it, it cost only about $8 million in uh, 1980 when it was filmed. And they, according to the interwebs, uh, there was 130 locations used. Now, some of them, as you might say, were in like different rooms of the same building. But the other fact that people like to cite about Prince of the City is the first film since The Godfather to shoot in all five boroughs of New York City. Uh, and there is, again, that like you get in most Lumet films, that incredible sense of place too. And the other thing I, really, I love about Lumet that always makes his films worth watching is how minimalist he is in his framing, that, that there's a lot of clean space in his, in his frames, he doesn't clutter them up, and there's always that focal point of who the characters are. And he'll often like shoot wide back and include like a large expanse of foreground or a lot of the city in the background. And he also likes to remove people, so you'll get those scenes even in a New York City where there's just the one character, and they're sort of very much alone. So again, the cinematography is really hammering home the theme of the film about this, you know, one man against the city. So on the Blu-ray, yeah, some of those a, outside. Go ahead, Ben. I was just gonna say on the Blu-ray, there's a, there's a featurette, and did I'm not sure if you guys noticed. I definitely <laughs> didn't notice. I'm taking this from the featurette, but Lumet <laughs> claims that he started the movie out with you know the character and having it really wide shots, and then by the end, after the character goes through his transformation, most of the shots were just of the face with you know the background didn't really matter. It was all just you know, focusing on in on Treat Williams and how his character had changed. So it's interesting that you you brought that up, Nick, because he, he mentioned that in whatever, you know, whatever year that came out, probably in the nineties, that featurette. But I, I I definitely respect directors that have like I don't know if he storyboards or whatever, but he planned he obviously planned this whole thing out to be that way, which is impressive, especially with all the moving parts of a movie production yeah so. and that's something else lumet loves to do is he likes to have a an evolving style throughout the film so famously 12 angry men uh it starts off in the jury room with the camera very high looking down and then it gets lower and closer to the faces of the juror as the movie goes on so as the drama intensifies you're getting these more and more sweaty close-ups of all these guys and that even subconsciously builds the tension throughout 
Claustrophobia. The, uh, claustrophobia, that's right. So with Prince of the City, he only ever used wide angle and zoom lenses and he changed the lighting throughout the film. So in the first half, Lumet says the lighting was not on the actors but on the background. Then in the middle of the film, the lighting had to alternate between the foreground and the background and by the end, the lighting is solely on the foreground only. And he also sort of pulled out a lot of the ambient sound of the city. So you start off with Treat Williams' character. He's this cop. He's ultimate, ultra street smart cop. You know, he knows everybody. He's got all these connections. He's really in tune with New York City. And by the end, he's being completely alienated from it in terms of his uh, relationships with the other police, his informers, his family, his friends, everyone. And that's reflected in the filmmaking with the sound mixing and the lighting. He's being literally cut out of the the place that he used to be such a part of. And what you're talking about now is something that Akira Kurosawa loved about this movie. How the lighting and the sound was elemental to the production and the focus on the characters. Which is a pretty cool trivia tidbit. Yeah, Which I'm pretty I, sure you you probably read. I definitely read that too. And something you always get with Kurosawa films is that the the weather is always omnipresent too. And, and perhaps it's just what New York City is like. But Lumet points out that there's only a couple of shots of sun throughout the you know 170 minutes of the film. That it's pretty much mostly overcast or at night, and that again reflects the sort of the the darkening tone of the film. And yeah, yeah you, unless if I'm misremembering or I'm getting this confused with another film, I think I read somewhere that there's actually only one true shot of the sky. Yeah. Which would make sense. Yeah. When they're in the car driving uh, and he's sort of, it's in the middle of our protagonist sort of um, breakdown. And he's like, he has one of the interesting lines there. He was saying, Yeah. Well, nobody joins the force to be a criminal. You gotta treat us different. I'll meet you there. When's the last time some mafia guy got in trouble and blew his brains out? I'll tell you when. Fucking never! Only cops! Got to uh, meet up with us at. Uh, no, hold Cops! Uh, Danny, what's the address, Dan? 419 St. George Avenue. I'll see you there. You gotta treat us different. Which is, of course, right. what actually happened, but there's reasons for that as well. Yeah. Can we talk about well? Can we talk about Treat Williams, uh, his character Danny Cielo? Danny his, Cielo. 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 <laughs> Yamaguchi. <laughs> um, his wife. I don't know the actress's name, but like uh, all Lindsay the sh- Krauss. No. Oh, there you go. So all the shit that, that this character puts this woman through and she's just like his confidant and never leaves him. I'm like, that would that like in today's movie making, that woman would have been gone in like 10 minutes of the runtime. Like, <laughs> she would have left him so quick. Like, all right, you're a piece of crap. I'm gone. Like, I, I don't know if you guys get caught on to that, but I was I was imp- I was impressed that the the character was like, yeah, I'll stay with this guy who's, you know, under prosecution and doing all these wiretaps and like, just telling me about it. It's no big deal. <laughs> I was just like, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that Lumet also like, we just mentioned Kurosawa and Frankenheimer. He's sort of mm, not particularly interested in women's stories. If I can venture that, 
But it was interesting too that you sort of all saw the wives of the cops hanging around too, and it looks like that was their social circle. So if if Treat Williams' character, Danny Cello, Mrs. Cello's what? If she left him, she'd be out on her own as well. Like her oh, yeah. circle seems to be the right. world of police too. So I don't think she could leave. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, her well, her well being was resting in his hands. Right. And I mean, it is kind of funny, Ben, because when you look at the when you look at his situation, you're like, doesn't he have more than one kid? <laughs> like, how how is all of this working with, you know, because there's so many time jumps and cuts and stuff. But um, Lumet obviously just wants to focus on the work side of the life. Yeah. Because there's very few scenes where it actually enters his, his marriage. Yeah, I mean, the marriage is only focused upon when he he's asking for help from his wife to discuss some issue he's dealing with. But most of the time, whenever they're doing anything that's recreational, it's cooking out with the partners and, you know, scheming their next shit and, you know, making cracking jokes and making fun of people. Like that's that's all you get. Um of, of there's also the factor too that that it, it's not really delved into into a huge amount of the film, but one of the things about the uh how, you know, this the this this squad that he was in in the police this in narcotics and they were skimming money off the uh, the suspects they arrested and taking it for themselves they were also building better lives for themselves and their families like if you see his house it's full of pretty nice furniture and um this there's an unspoken or maybe it is spoken throughout the film of the cops are really supplementing their maybe not particularly generous public servant salaries with the money that they're stealing off the the drug dealers so there's also that factor when you look at the family is that this is a man who's providing a much more comfortable and secure life for his wife and children right and the crime is enabling that or you know breaking the not being a good policeman's enabling that so there there is like you said that moral ambiguity uh the mafia guys have the most honor the cops are kind of scumbags except for their you know towards their partners which by the end of the movie that that changes but it, it's it's interesting to me that you know the lawyers and the the bailiffs and the judges are supposed to be these good people and upholding justice and stuff and they're all just just as crooked as anybody else. i mean nobody in this movie is really good right well that's just before we get on to like yeah. the all the rest of the law enforcement one more thing on the family there's another great quote from uh uh danny cello the, the first thing a cop learns is he can't trust anybody but his partners i'll tell you something right now i sleep with my wife but i live with my partners you people you people you're just out to hurt us you want to lay the whole fucked up system on us but nobody cares about me but my partner you understand that nobody and there's that whole theme about he doesn't want to rat on his partners and that there is real sort of family uh, and that there's like this immersa or a code and it's like the mafia, uh, you, know, you don't turn on your own. And this The real brotherhood, the real family he seems to have is with the other cops and the fact that all the cops hang out together and have barbecues like you were saying, Ben, and all the wives are really close, that's just, again, it's showing that there's this no real line between this idea of the family. It's all just in one, it's just one self-contained world and that's, of course, why his world collapses when he starts 
uh, informing for this corruption commission, whatever it was called, um, to and he 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 destroys his own world, which yeah doesn't make sense. I mean, uh, there was that I forget the guy's name. The I think he was a prosecutor and he was the general in Top Gun. You know, you're cash and checks, your body can't whatever right or whatever. Uh, that guy was saying like, you're a cop. You like you want to tell the truth. That's ultimately what this is about. And but. That's not the case for literally any of the other cops. They're all, you know, they they kill themselves before they turn people in. And he's the only one to go through with all these acts of breaking his code, right? It, so do you guys, like, have an idea of why he really did it in the beginning? Was it just, like, guilt from his father being like, I know you're a piece of shit. You know, I know you're a, a, a criminal, like... Well, I, he he says as much at some point. I forget who he says it to, but in his own words, paraphrasing, he says it's his own penance. So it's 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 him trying to defer his own guilt that he's built up over the years, um, which is interesting because there's really no like religious background to anything. It's 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 very it's as viewers we're just supposed to know that the things that he's doing are wrong, but he's doing them for justice. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but it's the gradations of that. Um, and the word penance and guilt, I mean, it's thrown, it's thrown out there by, by treat Williams's character. Am I, am I, I making think, this up? Did, did he say, oh, I want absolution at one point too. I, for, I, for, yes. That, okay. Yeah, exactly. That word pops up too. Okay. Yeah. I also think that, that it's a very important, again, because Lumet's not a, He's, a, he's not an obvious filmmaker. That scene where, you know, the whole thing about you, he's supplying his informants with drugs because then they give information about the big-time dealers. And then when his informant calls him up in the middle of the night desperate for drugs and he ends up having to go and rob another junkie and has to chase this guy through downpour. the streets in the middle of a downpour and beat him up to steal some smack off him to give to this other junkie and i think that was like a moment of self-realization he's like why am i chasing junkies through the rain and beating them up at three in the morning yeah you know what what am i even doing with my life am i still a cop and then he's that's, nice that's, to that's an excellent my, point and then he's nice to the guy for you know takes him home and stuff it's bizarre <laughs> i know and then that that the other junkie's girlfriend is uh cynthia nixon from the sex in the city <laughs> oh yeah very young <laughs> Very young. She lived about 15 there. Yeah, I'm so, like... Such a random person to be in this film. But Nick, I think you're right because that that whole moment, it sequences properly and perfectly to what happens to him. And he has that moment after he's run through... He's, he's running blocks around the ghetto, chasing someone in the rain, getting his, getting his ass kicked sort of just metaphorically or mm. whatever. Um... And he's got to beat a junkie up to get the smack to the other junkie. But he has that moment where he's looking at Cynthia Nixon and she's getting beat by the guy who he just took smack off of. Yes. He enabled that. He's yeah. And he's, he's defeated. Yeah. Because it's the whole thing. It's like he, as he says at the end about people don't join the police to become criminals, but you sort of get inculcated into that world. And that's the whole thing about, um, 
the this being kind of like the anti-Serpico or the more mature version of Serpico. And that's actually interesting because the character that um, Treat Williams, Danny Cello, is based on a real cop called Robert Lucci, who was uh, a New York City cop who worked undercover exposing police corruption. And one of the strange things is that when he went sort of sort of to confess and work with the authorities to try and root out this corruption, one of the people that Robert Lucci spoke to was the real Frank Serpico. So there's an interesting relation <laughs> between like the real people that this was all based on. This is based on a 1978 novel that was written by a New York City police commissioner about, again, this process of trying to clean up the force. So, yeah, he uh, there's an interesting sort of parallel there as well too. But, yeah, it... it because Lumet, he's uh, not an obvious filmmaker, he doesn't have like a big scene. I mean, there's some big scenes and some big acting from Treat Williams, but he doesn't have one of those on-the-nose kind of this is why I'm doing it kind of things. You sort of have to figure it out yourself. You know, figure it out yourself and sort of look at this guy and look at this world and see the conflict between somebody who, again, breaks the rules to uphold justice. And actually that ties well, into what I think was just my favourite quote that um, I think sums up sort of the entire film was about. I never sold narcotics I gave. In narcotics, you have to supply your informants. There's no other way, that's it. Under the law, the gift of narcotics is the same as a sale. Drop I know the law. The law doesn't know the streets. <laughs> and that was when he was talking about, you know, the things that sort of started this whole thing about you know, giving uh junkies drugs for information and then is that a crime yeah technically it is but if you're using it to take out the big time drug dealers to try and clean up the streets is that a smaller transgression in the service of a greater good and that's what he's that's the conflict they have with like the da's and the prosecutors later on yeah it's it's the second quote on, on imdb if you wanted to read it nick it's, it right? it's, it's 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 very long it's close okay. though but he's he's given the da shit saying like hey i'm doing this because you guys are in charge You're like yeah i'm the one cleaning up the streets and whatever but mm. it sorry chris you're about to say something just going off of what both of you were saying it it's almost like this film is not i mean nick you're right this this is a more mature version of serpico maybe it isn't anti-serpico if you want to say that it's almost like a, a bizarro godfather though because <laughs> you're looking at the mafia lifestyle and how it's very like it's organized crime and and the flip side of that would be this like a cop digging his way into the underworld and realizing what's happening to him or where michael sort of ascends um treat is kind of trying to descend and get and get out of it Sort of an interesting parallel, if you will, looking yeah, at it that way. And that, that's something that, yeah, I, I, I definitely see that too. Like all of Michael Corleone's decisions are completely rational, but he just has to keep going once he's made that decision and he ends up again causing all of these deaths and chaos. And that decision that Danny Cello makes to sort of turn informant and start wearing a wire, all of his decisions from there are very rational, but he just causes this unimaginable uh, sort of rippling chaos throughout that world as it sort of it, it collapses. Right. And, and you know, he's, he's, he's heading downwards, as you said, while well, Michael Corleone is ascending to become the Godfather, but there is that 
there is a similar process at play there too. So, yeah. And again, another film I just wanted to mention is interesting uh, about that 70s, 80s pivot would be Michael Mann's Thief, which has yeah. that sort of 70s grit but 80s style. And that's something that Mann would look at throughout his thing about the duality between the police and the criminals and about how the two worlds very much reflect each other too. Well, and James Conn's Frank ends up destroying his life when he can't get what he wants. You know, when the power, mm. when the powers that be start to control him and take away his freedom or individuality, whatever it is. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so all of these films are orbiting around like these up. institutions. And when you say institutions, you tend to not think of like crime, but it, it, there's institutions, there's laws, there's rules, there's norms, there's codes. Well, take it a step further. It's also the institution of family. All three of these, the Godfather, Prince of the City, and Thief, reflect around that as perhaps the ideal, um, but they handle it at different, at very different levels. I mean, the Godfather takes family and and completely twists it around. Prince of the City sort of just uses it as a facade and um, sort of like the front to what's actually going on. And Thief, it is the ideal. But yeah, all of them are sort of... Uh... A slightly different versions you know thieves about finding this unconventional family and you know the, the in the godfather the mafia is the family and in prince yes. of the city the brotherhood of police they're the family is the family exactly exactly yeah there's, cool a, good tri- there's a good there's a good triple bill for you if uh, you've got a very long day <laughs> <laughs> easy work for christopher <laughs> <laughs> well you know what it's it's cool that you bring up thief too because the soundtrack to prince of the city it has that little like synth uh unsettling synth that blares every now and then um and i would be i wouldn't i'd be lying if i said that it didn't remind me of of michael mann's work a little bit or at least that 80s um night circuit run of films um do you guys know what i'm talking about it's it was that little it would be that little unsettling synth I noticed the synth. I sort of found it was there was a lot more of a a very sort of spare jazz kind of soundtrack in certain places. Um, you know, almost a bit Chinatown, or actually the film I was watching earlier, uh, Elevator to the Gallows, uh, Miles Davis's very emotive trumpet work. Um, and there isn't that much music in it. I mean, Lumet famously often doesn't include music at all, like in music. Dog Day Afternoon or um, 12 Angry Men, I think, doesn't have a score either. But he used it very well here. But, yeah, that the, that very haunting sort of lonely jazz, again, reflecting the, the Danny Cello character of a man who's lost everything. Well, and jazz is, is an, also an easy metaphor for, like, organized chaos. You have the... You have the different instruments that collide and clash and then one will solo while the other one takes, you know, steps back. So that's a very, I think a lot of people use that, but that's, that's a pretty cool metaphor too. Benjamin. Yeah. I, uh, I did want to shout out to treat Williams. Um, he had multiple scenes that were pretty, you know, he was hamming it up a lot, like really getting into the role, which I, I, you know, you always like to see. But that scene where he's um, with the two, I think it one's a bailiff and one's a cop, and they're both corrupt, and they're in the diner yes. or a bar or whatever. That's my, hands down my favorite scene in this movie. Uh, when he beats up, when he beats up the them. Yeah, he goes from yeah. like super calm to just like insane, and like it's like a, a drop of a hat. It's awesome. Um, but I don't that 
Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're good. That what? I was going to say you bring up that scene and that in particular that reminded me, I don't know where I read it, but someone wrote about how this is a film of, of heartbreak and it's supposed to be a film of heartbreak about all these various people that, that coincide with the law, the criminal and the, uh, the criminal world and the cop world. Um, but particularly that one guy that you're mentioning in that scene, the, the, the fatter guy, yeah. um, that rang true for me there because like, you know, that he's a bad dude, but like at one point when he gets arrested, I just felt, I felt terrible for him Yep, because he gets thrown to the ground and, you know, maybe heartbreak's a strong word, but that's, that was someone's, um, someone's, uh, someone else's words about this movie. And I think it, I think it's eloquently said that way um, because any of these characters, you, your heart sort of breaks for them, treats family, the people that treat arrests, treat himself. Sorry, not to take over what you were saying, Ben. No, you're good. Yeah. And also I do want to, the guy, the, the the bigger gentleman who was thrown to the ground, I think that's Ron Karabatsos, I think is his name. He was one of the okay, one of the non actors. So Lumet said that he that's the only time he did that in one of his movies because it was so difficult to like try to have the two different like su- super subtle side and then guys that want to ham it up like Treat Williams uh, come together because. They're you know clashing personalities trying to get these performance the, you know, the the same level of performance out of the actors. I, so I mean I just so I you're think, saying ham. Do, do you think Treat Williams was was overdoing it in places? I no, mean there no, was well, big, big monologues. I'm just saying he he really let's just say maybe not ham. Maybe he just was super emotive after a certain point in the movie. Maybe after 25 35 minutes in the movie, I feel like he just that emotional those emotional performances just kept coming out of him. Maybe that's also reflective again, that you start off like you see that very professional drug bust they do at the start of the film and you just see like a man and a team working very professionally. They're in their element. And then there's that great bit where they all swagger into court, interrupting like another case that's being heard in front of a judge or a magistrate and go, just drop this. We're, we're more important than that. They're just like the cocks of the walk swaggering through. They are the princes of the city from the yeah. title. And then, of course, when he sort of turns informant, he starts to lose that and then he's mentally breaking down. And that's where you do get more of those sort of shouty monologues too. Yeah, everything. I think the only time he... The only, the only time he overacts, overacts is when I think... Is that first monologue he has where he's with the... It's like, I think they're yeah. both DAs. And he's in he, that little dining. He's drinking. He's drinking beer in like their, yeah, whatever. Yes. Room with them. Yeah. I, I think that might be the only time I think he sort of goes a little overboard. He, he like um, is sitting on the couch with with the guys. Talk. They're just like talking normally, and he just like jumps up, starts running around and stuff. Yeah, and I'm yeah, like, what are yeah. you doing? Well, <laughs> and he drops the yeah. He he's, he drops the f bomb like ten times. I mean, he's he's clearly angry and he's letting it out. Um. But maybe that's the only time for me that he sort of overdoes it. I think he's pitch perfect for the rest yeah, of the maybe, movie. Maybe they could have built up to like the big shouty uh, moments as, you know, maybe that one was a little bit too early. Just on the, you were talking about the, the non-actors. I also just want to say how I really appreciate the faces. He's got all these ugly Italians and maybe a few like Irish and Jews, basically the people who lived in New York at the time. There's no California pretty boys in this film. And this is something Chris and I were talking about when we watched another great gritty 70s crime movie, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. 
Like right. it's kind of like it was just the cast was basically like Hollywood. Who's the Hollywood tough guys there? But even Lumet went further than that by casting all these non-actors and you get these wonderful, authentic, you know, 1970s New York faces and the accents and you it, that really helps sell the reality of this this world. Um, I, yeah, I think these- too- Two examples of that I want to point out are the two mob guys. Like in in mob movies, the the mobsters or the gangsters, the Italian guys are really always like. There's always a few of them are really good looking. They they got perfect yeah. outfits, perfect everything. And then these two guys, one of them is bald with like a freaking mullet kind of thing going yeah. on, and the other guy is just like this old guy with. He looks like um, what's the guy from uh Sopranos? Is it Sal? Is it is is Sal the guy that was in uh the Oh, you're talking about Bruce Van Springste- character. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen band. Yeah, that guy, Van Zant. Yeah, P- Paul Van Zant, whatever his name is. Um, yes. Yeah, he looks like him. He looks he's like him. Ugly, kind of. I mean, not like an ugly, ugly dude, but like not good looking. You're, you're, right? Sorry, you're you're talking about the cousin, right? You're not talking about his cop friend that's played by Jerry Orbach. You're talking yeah, about no, I'm uh, ta- his yeah. cousin his, Nick. His cousin. cousin. His cousin in the mafia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which we have, which yes. we haven't brought up yet. I was gonna. I, slipped my mind but yeah he's even you know all the italians like the cops are italians the the mobs are you yes. know the mob guys are italians they have a, a mutual understanding that like they're not going to mess with each other or at least not that much um i don't know so i cut i cut you off nick but i really wanted to point that out like when you said authentic it's like every character in this movie like i don't think there was besides street williams which they call babyface multiple times Everybody else is like super average looking person, or yeah, or, even or, the, or the, lower. The, the, the cousin Nick, just real quick, another character that your heart breaks for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just I think Lumet. There was sort of talk about maybe getting uh, Al Pacino to star or Robert De Niro, but again, they would have been wrong. And Lumet picked Treat Williams not because of his performance in 1941. I think he was more because of his performances on Broadway, but he wanted someone who's, again, like a young guy who could carry a film but is not a well-known face to, you know, theatre cinema goers at the time. He said, I didn't want to spend two reels trying to get people to forget everything they know about this guy. He wanted someone who was fresh. But, yeah, those background and and minor characters really sell the authenticity. When I say ugly, I mean ugly for the movies. Uh, And you get so used to... Yeah, glamorous movie stars who you don't really believe in whatever yeah. profession they're supposed to have. But these people I, aren't Ryan Reynolds or Ryan Gosling or any anybody like that. This is yeah, like that's right. these are real lived-in people. Yes. Is yeah. there a reason that you use Barbie's Ken as an example? Just the, literally the first two people that popped into my head. Oh, we know they're what Chris. Ryan. Ryan. We know what Chris is thinking about. <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> Um, he got me. He got yeah. me. The, uh, the, the, um, the, the film critic, Mark Kermode, he has a rule called Meg Ryan as a helicopter pilot for like bad casting of very glamorous Hollywood stars in roles that you could never believe them. You're talking about Charles Bronson before, like in Death Wish. I didn't buy him as an architect. No. I'll buy Charles Bronson as a cop. Yep. Architect. No. What about a, no a wa- what about a watermelon farmer? I just am trying to get my watermelons. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Majestic. Yes. Yes. Yes, that would go Which, on a great double bill with, with um, Petey Wheatstraw for gratuitous watermelon destruction scenes. Wheatstraw. And speaking of Italians, Al Lettieri in Mr. Majestic, like, 
perfect oh, character I mean, actor. I just saw Al uh, Udieri in um, was in Caliber Nine, was he, or was it? Uh, yeah, no, no, Flatfoot in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, another great seventies. I'm gonna I'm gonna carry this tangent another step further. Doesn't uh, what's his name shoot a watermelon in in uh, James Fox or is it Edward Fox in that film that uh, it won uh, Collab Week one of the times you hosted the the Fox or what is it called? You talking about um, uh, Day, Day of the Jackal? Day of the Jackal. I'm sorry. I yes, that one. He shoots a watermelon in that one. But I think he was actually aiming for Tiger practice. For those who haven't seen it, there's this amazing scene in the 1974, I think, Charles Bronson film, Mr. Majestic, where the Bronson is a melon farmer and the bad guys just machine gun all of his melons and there's just like 30 seconds of melons being shot with an automatic <laughs> weapon. It's one of the most amazing scenes in the film. You've just got to see this. <clears throat> yeah, what actually, I, okay, let me go back to talk about some of the cast who are actually in Friends of the City. You mentioned the guy who was playing that real um, asshole DA, and that's James Tolkien, and he was the yeah. uh, asshole uh, in air traffic control guy in in top gun and he was also the asshole principal in back to the future (laughs) and robert zemeckis (laughs) cast him as the principal based on his performance in prince of the city he's like i need an officious guy who's really annoying (laughs) yeah i mean he's yeah effective in his role you you see him lance henrickson plays one of the young da's um i already mentioned jerry orbach but He's young. he's one of my favorites, and mm. and he's yeah, and he's young here too. Same with Lance Hengr- Hen- Hendrickson. There, well, Lance Hendrickson's an old favorite of Lamette. He was he had very small parts in Dog Day Afternoon and Network yes. too. Um, so yeah, great point bringing that up too. Um, I like Jerry Orbach, and I'm, I want to bring him up again because it's fascinating to see him in this role, um, only because he he later started in Law and Order. He played one of the detectives for a long time on that show. Um, so interesting seeing him sort of carry on that role, except obviously he was less corrupt <laughs> in law and order. Um, so for whatever that's worth. Uh, and one of the, uh, the, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, no, you go, Nick. It's fresh in your head. I won't forget this. Okay. I was just going to say that um, there are a number of the characters because it's based on, again, this book that was written by a former NYPD commissioner and uh, you might have seen this, but uh, one of the, the the guys who turns up closer to the end is the, playing this character, a U.S. attorney called Mario Vincente, and he's actually based on Rudy Giuliani, who in the late 70s was working his way up the sort of uh, the roles in the Justice Department in the Southern District of New York. And something, of course, interesting about Rudy Giuliani is that he became famous as a guy who busted organized crime and then later got involved in organized crime. But he's a classic sort of um, Italian-American story because his father was actually like a sort of low-level mobster, kind of like uh, the for the Italian mafia of what uh, the character in Friends of Eddie Coyle was, just like not a, not a big shot, but someone who Helped out in various various illegal activities, and Rudy Giuliani's mother was a passionate fan of Benito Mussolini. So uh, again, if you want to do a bit of armchair psychology on Rudy Giuliani, the fans of Mussolini as a mother and a mobster as a father. <laughs> so he was originally the black sheep of the family by going into law enforcement and, and busting mobsters and putting big mafia guys in jail. But then he decided to get involved in organized crime later in life too. So again, it's just sort of funny seeing that quite well portrayed character in the film who's based on 
you know, one of the biggest characters in uh, American politics. And I was, I was going to yeah, say, interesting. go ahead, Ben. I, I was going to say, since we're speaking of tangents and, and references and movies that remind, you know, this movies that this movie reminded us of, uh, an average looking people, uh, the informant with Matt Damon, which is tonally very different, but you know, the guy who is a corporate informant for the FBI, whatever. If, if, you've, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. But by the end of that movie, Matt Damon, who, you know, 90s, early 2000s, very good look, you know, people cast him for his looks, I'm sure, for, for, for roles. But in that movie, at the, at the end of it, he's this like, you know, he's got the bald cap on, the fake bald cap. And that, for whatever reason, I'm like, oh, the informant, it would be like the perfect foil for Princeton the City because that movie is a comedy, uh, making fun of all this kind of stuff. But, <laughs> I just, I don't know. It came into my head, so I wanted to get that out of there before I forgot. Interesting comparison. Yeah, turn, not not the same at all, but 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 kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comments yeah, about the cast or uh, Bob Balaban? He has a interesting oh, the, role the, the, the as scummy, the scummy senator, right? Yes, no, I think the, he was um, a senator. Or, no, he's or the U.S. District judge? Attorney That's as it. well. The guy in Washington. Okay, but his yeah. name was his um, name sounded like they were saying senator. It was like Senator something. I got to look that up. Uh, Santis, I think his name is Santa Massino. Yeah, because I, 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 I thought he was saying Senator Massimo or something. I'm like, and then at the <laughs> end they said it's like a. A normal person said it really slow, and I'm like, "Oh, that's his name." Okay, San- yeah, Santa Massino. Yeah, it's a mouthful, but so yes, many Italians. Another- yeah, some some would charge too many because apparently <laughs> there's a uh, hundred and twenty six speaking parts in this film too. So I I have to confess I lost track of you know a number of the minor Italian named characters. Um, well, do you guys at- want to talk about favorite scenes? I don't know if you're still looking at the cast, Ben. I was just gonna say real quick the. We we were talking about the verdict with Kevin and how Bruce Willis is in that. Apparently, he's in this as an extra. <laughs> no but way. I, not sure if it's true. It's on the internet, so someone can fact check me. It's not like that scene in the verdict where it just pans across the jury and then just Bruce Willis is sitting. There. Bruce Willis. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, so not, it's definitely not that obvious, but no. He was um, making his way up clearly because the verdict came out after this, so he he was yeah. getting more screen time gradually. He's a better class of extra because the camera actually focuses on him. Yeah. Uh, the last, the last shout out. Well, I'm looking at the letterbox casting, and there's three Tonys already. But uh, to- Tony Manafo, uh, who was in Rocky, I think uh, he was one of the the mobsters. I'll give a little shout out because all these guys, like, they're all probably close to dead or dead, and they probably don't get talked about anymore. So you gotta give a little love to these people. Uh, but yeah, Italians. There's plenty of them in this movie. I, I count four Tonys in the cast. Uh... All right, your eyes are better than mine. <laughs> yes, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of Tonys. There's a handful of Peters. I mean, that's not really Italian, but there's still. more Tonys here than on Broadway. There you go. <laughs> yes. Just wanted oh. to say because we we're just talking about that um, the U.S. District Attorney as, Attorney as well. One of the other interesting sort of themes that goes through the film is that all the guys who uh, Danny Cello is helping all these, you know, U.S. district attorneys, FBI guys, city ones. They are all getting promoted. This is really good for their career. So, like, Danny's world is being destroyed, but all these guys are 
making a name for themselves and moving up the the, the, the hierarchy based on his work. Um, that's and then, and then that's it also causes him incredible bitterness as well. Too. Well, those those two guys should get shout outs too, though. They they played their parts really well. It, the oh, first, great. it's it's the first two guys that I I don't know either of their names, but um, it's the very first guy he goes to, and then the second guy that joins in a little Rick, bit later. But Rick they both Ca- Rick Capolino, the character is played by yeah Norman, the guy with the Norman mustache. Is, yeah, he's another one of those non actors, I think, and he was really good. Norman uh, Parker's definitely one, and then you said who was the other one? No, that, I was saying the character's name. He, he again, another yeah. Italian character. Uh, oh yes, enough. yes, he, he was the first one that he comes in contact with, and there was another guy that joins Paul, later. Paul Roebling. Um, Paul Roebling. Yes, Brooks that is Page and is they, the character it, name. Yeah, they both become incredibly empathetic to him by the time the end comes around. Yeah, and then they're having that interesting, um, it's almost like there's there's some brilliant editing where it's cutting between the two trials. So we're seeing Danny, who originally purged himself by not revealing all of these, you know, drugs that he gave to, uh, you know, informants and all the other small crimes that he did. And they're having that hearing about whether or not to, to throw the book at Danny for all of these crimes and the fact that he purged himself by lying in court. And then they're saying, oh, the... No cop will ever talk to us again. And then some people have said that this film it is much more sympathetic to the police than it is to the district attorneys and the prosecutors. And I don't quite agree with that personally. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think, if it sort of makes the, the higher-ups, the feds, look like they're only interested in scoring prosecutions, that they're not interested in, again, the justice that comes from cleaning up the streets. I felt it was relatively fair because they had that big debate there and ultimately that, I can't remember who it was, Solicitor General, someone eventually comes down and they decide the, they're not the going to prosecute. The federal DA. The federal DA, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, who, who decides that they're not going to prosecute it. But that is also could be just, again, self-interest because they want people to cooperate with them in the future. Yeah, I think, again, like Lumet says, this is really up for audience interpretation I think most of those guys were, were most of the law side was very, very much in a negative light. And then at the end, they have their little, you know, their little come, their comeuppance, and, not not comeuppance. They, they have their little moment of saving Danny from jail, which I don't believe he would have gotten away with no jail time. That's, I think that's preposterous. But um, yeah, they, they, those guys throughout the entire first, and second acts of the movie, they're very much pompous ass wipes. They have these nice, you know, Danny's giving up his life in his house and they're making him move all around to all these different houses to, you know, stay kind of protected and not get what, you know, whacked. Um, and they have these nice apartments with all these nice fancy furniture. And I think they're portrayed as kind of taking advantage of, um, the guy who's, you know, doing all the actual work and sacrificing stuff. Um, Again, what was his name again? The Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien was the the bald guy. He was yeah. the one who so was he, um, the dist- he was the one who was uh, wanted to to lock Daniel yeah, up yeah. for perjuring perjuring himself. I think that yeah, Tolkien Tolkien or Tolkien or whatever. Yeah, he's definitely negative. The character is George Polito. Another yeah. Italian. <laughs> yeah, they're all Italians. I'm telling you. But he 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 was another example of them. Anybody in a suit, you can kind of safely say that they're not good or not again i th- 
I think it's up to audience interpretation for the most part. Um, cause there's, you know, his cousin, Nick, the, the, the mafioso who dies, he's mostly a good guy besides his mob ties. I mean, he does all the right things. He gives him, gives his, co- his cousin a warning. He gives him, um, grace. Like he doesn't, you know, kill him when he should have probably, uh, the mob probably wanted him to cause he could get close to him. And then, but he's not even allowed, uh, treat Williams, character is not even allowed to go see him at his funeral because his family doesn't want him there i mean those guys are portrayed pretty quote-unquote positively um but it's up to it's up to your personal preference i think and by the end when they're in that classroom and he's telling them he's an undercover you know had experience in narcotics and undercover informing and all that stuff and the guy gets up and leaves um he doesn't really make this big old ruckus about leaving he's just like all right i have nothing to learn from you and then you got cielo uh smiling kind of or grimacing whatever you want you know again it depends on your perspective what do you guys um think at the end like what was that end to you was it was it the right thing was it the right thing that he was allowed to be a teacher or an instructor or you know was it like uh, oh he's got he's gotten away with it again well I, i don't know Cinematically, I think it was the perfect ending because the previous 15 minutes to that scene, you have that brilliantly edited back and forth courtroom scene and all the DAs are trying to determine his fate and they they eventually determine that he's going to get scot-free, like no jail time. So they they come up with a verdict and he's not going to go to jail. However, at the very last scene, it ends with the punctuation saying um, that he may not have jail time, but he's not getting off scot-free because people are going to have their own opinions on who he is as a person, um, despite what he may think of, despite him thinking that he might have achieved penance by doing everything that he did, there are still going to be people who hate him or think less of him or whatever. Um, so I, I think it was I think it was the perfect end. But is that more important than being able to live with yourself? Like, can he, you know, by the end, you don't know. Can he live with himself the rest of his life with what he did? It's, it's to me it seems like he went through a bunch of shit it was awful probably almost ruined his marriage and it is you know his left his house all that kind of stuff terrible terrible stuff he was kind of deserved it a little bit though but by the end he's kind of redeemed a little bit as much as you can be that's my reading yeah i agree very much with chris there he- this takes place over the course of several years. So he's essentially already been suffering a great deal of, if again, we get back to this idea of penance, crime and punishment. And uh, so what would be the advantage of throwing him in jail for another six months? Like his life has already been, as we ke- I keep saying, his life, it's about the destruction of like one man and his world. And what was interesting, we we're talking about the cops and his cousin who's in the mob. It was. It starts off as this very, again, a world, a very self-contained, closed world. There's the cops. There's the the, the mafia. They have an understanding. You know, they use the junkies to inform on the dealers and skim money off the top. And every it sort of works out for a lot of people. I'm going to say not going to say everybody, but it works out for a lot of people. But then he breaks that by going out. He breaks the code of silence. He breaks that code of brotherhood, the brotherhood of police, like the immerser and the mob. And then that's when it all sort of goes to shit. 
So again, because he's already lost pretty much everything except his job. Okay, he's still got his marriage and his job, but he's got no life, no career, and people are just going to like walk out and be to his disrespect him to his face because clearly that guy at the end he was a cop or a detective who felt that he'd gone against that code. So again, he's been punished, I think, enough that he doesn't need like a jail sentence on that as well. Too, he's he's uh, he's definitely suffering. People are going to have their opinions no matter what. And I think that's, I mean, the ending is saying that, but it also sort of justifies in a, like I said, in a cinematic sense, it justifies how he sort of gets off scot-free with no jail time as you went into depth saying, Nick. Yeah, it's, it. he doesn't have jail time, but I think he's punished plenty. Exactly. For his own sins, as well as the sort of the sins of the, police department so he's kind of an involuntary or maybe voluntary because he did sign up for this sort of martyr for the for uh you know the whole something that's much bigger than himself and that's right. again you sort of said that there's like no religion in the film which is funny because they're all sort of italian and imagine they're all catholic but there's kind of this secular religion of again this moral code and it might be immoral because these are guys who were stealing and breaking the law, perjuring themselves. But again, there was one of the other cops, there was another great scene when he was talking to another one of the prosecutors or the DAs and saying, I and Detective Lewis Dooley and Joe Carpo held back five kilos out of that particular seizure. We sold it. We also sold prisoners their freedom. Overall, we must have ripped off a couple of hundred thousand bucks from dealers. Maybe more. You asked me before about perjury. About 20 times in court. I don't know why you people don't understand the system. You want a conviction, but you got these stupid search and seizure laws and wiretaps. Case one never got made without an illegal wiretap. And you're not ever going to get a conviction if a cop don't commit perjury. What is it that you want? You want the big dealer out of business? The only way I know to push him out of business is to steal his cash. Otherwise, somewhere down the line, he's going to buy out. He'll buy himself a bondsman, a DA, a judge. The scumbag dealer's back on the streets before the arresting officer. The only way I know to stop him is to steal his cash. As far as selling him their freedom, I never once sold a dealer his freedom, unless I didn't have enough evidence to make the bus legal. I'll give you all the details you want, but what I'm never going to give you is what happened to that fucking 120 pounds of heroin. I didn't do it. Why don't you talk to your friend Cielo? Huh? Didn't you ever think of that? Why is it that Cielo's getting away with all this shit? And you tell me I'm a dead man. Because <laughs> you're a bunch of fucking hypocrites. So once again, they're saying <laughs> we break the rules to uphold, like, the law or to protect the people who are in the city, who are in, on the streets. And that's that moral ambiguity that runs throughout the whole thing. And again, as I think uh, Chris was saying, it's it's asking difficult questions and it's not sort of spoon feeding the film, the audience, easy answers. I think the only thing that's truly clear is that Tolkien character um, who even says that, you know, if the law doesn't stand, I don't know what I'm doing here because my dad was a lawyer and my dad's dad was a lawyer. I, I think it's clearly saying something about nepotism and how people who sort of get they live in their insular worlds and they, they don't actually see what's happening on the ground. 
And that can be that can be a danger if you're not aware of these things and you're somehow involved with them at the same time. But, you know, involved by by multiple degree degrees or parts of separation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that guy has that very like textbook kind of black and white view of the law. But if you wanted to say yes. that the conflict in the film is really between moral absolutism and utilitarianism. What's the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And how do we find that balance? And how do we get by and live in a challenging, difficult city and with dangerous streets? Yes, and perhaps that and perhaps the answer to that is Danny Cielo's story, where you have people like him that go through the system, and those people have to make sacrifices for the greater good. I think it's to the film's credit. And that's why Lumet was talking about it as the anti-Serpico. Not saying that Serpico was a, like a bad film or it was dumb or anything like that, but it was yeah. a more black and white look at some of these same questions than the, again, deep, deep moral ambiguity with no obvious answers that you get in Prince of the City. Yeah, agreed. And, and bringing back the, again, you brought up Serpico, but bringing the Godfather back into the mix, it's, it's interesting because Lumet's hitting that point home as we already established with the lighting. Um, it's just, it's interesting to think about that aspect too, in, in relation to the Godfather, because the photography is just so dark and it's almost consistently dark where here Lumet is doing as, as you had already explained, going from the background lighting all the way to the foreground. It's, it's an interesting elemental position, especially showing the characters morality shades of gray are you guys ready to rate I right, yeah i can rate i think I that's know, most of it i already know chris's rating how do you know i'm not going to change it <laughs> yeah we'll let <laughs> all right why don't you go the, first the, the guest goes first okay I, all right so i think i'm going to give this one an eight out of ten uh, I did really, really like the film. Uh, it was very well written, very well acted, very well directed. Uh, just loved the sense of place. There was some on-the-nose dialogue, a few plot contrivances. I agree that especially that first speech of Danny's was a bit over the top. And with all the best will in the world, I did start to feel the length of sort of the two-and-a-half-hour mark approached. And with those 126 speaking parts and all those Italian names, uh, I did lose track of a few people. And there was that whole character of um, Danny's junkie brother who was in like one scene and then was just dropped and that kind of never went anywhere. Took the words out of my mouth. So eight out of ten for me, really enjoyed the film. Not quite perfect, but definitely top tier limit. Awesome. I uh, will... will I will definitely parrot the brother issue. Like there was that when he goes to see his cousin and then they don't let him in when Danny goes to see and his dad's there, his brother's there and give him the little smirk or whatever. There's never ever any conclusion to that. And I also think that the father, um, Danny's father, there wasn't any conclusion there. Like, did you forgive your son for being a piece of shit his whole lot, you know, his whole career or like, what's the deal there? So with those two considered and also Nick, I mentioned the runtime earlier, but I will say that the runtime, I and three hour movies, you know, it, it, it's got to be really good 
for me to think that it justifies three hours. But I am going to rate this um, an eight as well. I was I was leaning towards a seven, but I do think it's really good. The acting's impeccable, uh, considering that the the non you can't really tell who's an actor and who's a non actor. I mean, you you know if you know the actors, but if you don't know, it's hard to pick them out, right? So I I, I think Lumet's direction is ridiculously good but i think the story was a little that was my hold up was just that's that's that that one that star that letterbox star that i'm gonna minus off um so yeah eight out of ten and i we're gonna we're gonna anticipate chris's rating here huh i'm not gonna rehash anything but i i originally had this rated 17 year old me loved this movie i still like this movie a lot um I gave it a perfect score when I first saw it. Um, I am going to downgrade it to a nine, though, on this rewatch. So you just had to make me use a calculator. <laughs> yes, sir. Where did the where did the one point or half a star fall for you? Well, if I'm being honest, I seventeen year old me, or however old I was when I saw this, I I don't remember feeling the runtime. So like I I felt it like I agree I agree with everything you guys said it's um it's sort of the contrivance a few contrivances that first monologue um not not the best but everything else is excellent yeah nine a nine or ten I was expecting I mean you have a ten on Letterbox but a nine is still indicative of a good movie obviously but um eight point three average no no now I uh. I don't know. I, I I think this could age better on a second watch, and but I can't wait five years, right? Like if you wait five years, you're just re, you know you're gonna forget. You're gonna everything. forget. You're gonna forget all the Italian guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I I I think this is definitely a high highly recommended movie. I mean, just us talking about it, uh, we had a, we had a lot to say, and when you have a lot to say about a movie, that's usually a good thing. Yeah, and again, it's it's an it's a it's a demanding film, but it's one that I think that what Lumet does at his best is that he really challenges the viewers with these difficult moral questions, and that he's very interested in the idea of broader idea of justice, not only in the justice sort of department or the justice field, like you're talking about the verdict. Obviously, that's a courtroom drama or the Twelve Angry Men. But even if you look at some of his other movies like um, Failsafe, the great sort of the other nuclear threat film <laughs> from 1964 that wasn't Dr. Strangelove, or he also did a, a very good John le Carre adaptation called The Deadly Affair that not many people have seen. But again, he's asking again, he's looking at spycraft and going, how can we balance out the, the greater good? I think Chris used that phrase before, with all of these moral ambiguities, these complexities, these compromises that you have to make so i think that's something that really runs through lamette's filmography is that this idea of, of of justice in very different forms and how humans sort of struggle with this or even at a at a greater baseline to that is just <clears throat> empathizing with the players you know like you don't think as a person who 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 you think you are and how you live your life you don't think you would empathize with a mobster or you don't think you would empathize with um a cop who's committing actual crimes but 
you certainly feel that way at the end of Prince of the City where you could feel for every single one of these people. And that's, that is the success of this film. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, even, even the James Tolkien character, the Polito who we're kind of picking on, you can see his yes. he might have a very reductive black and white view of what law and order and justice right and wrong. But again, he's not, it's not a, it's not coming from a place of falseness. It's people do think like that. He's got a point. Yeah. They were breaking the law, but he's just lacking the context. Maybe. Right. And and Chris, we did yeah, ignore your yeah. ignore your question about favorite scenes, but uh, oh, yeah. him getting it, <laughs> him, okay. him getting him getting kneed in the nuts by uh, what's his name, G- uh, Gus Orbach, Gary Orbach, Who's Jerry that? Orbach, Jerry Orbach, yeah, yeah, that was a good scene when he just like, yeah, at least book me for assault, <laughs> like just <laughs> knee right to the fucking you know he's shit, you know he's the voice of Lumiere from uh, Beauty and the Beast, right? He's the that, candlestick. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> didn't know that, but uh, I, I'm hearing it now. Yeah, I'm, I'm never so going. I'm never know. going in. I'm never giving up my partners. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's a great character, and it's just again, it's crazy seeing him play this role as a precursor to what he did in Law and Order for 15 years. I guess yeah, his favorite scene. I was going to say for favorite scenes, I was I'll nominate that foot chase through the rain, even if it feels like the most sort of obviously cinematic moment in the film. It's kind of like the only real bit of action, but I just love Lumet's framing, the way that he shoots the you know new. It's it, this is one of those classic New York was a shithole movies that I just love. I just love the texture of New York City in the seventies and eighties and all the you know, piles of rubble and burned out buildings and graffiti and litter and all that. It's my happy place. I just love it. So that's kind of the most sort of showy bit of the film. It's the one of the scenes that's not just people talking, but uh, yeah, real, real standout moment just because of that rain. And again, that's something that you Kurosawa would approve of just giving that extra texture to the scene with the weather. Yeah, and again, not to rehash anything, but I really appreciate your view of this, Nick, where I didn't see it so much as a changing point for his character, but it's it's the most cinematic, but it, it could be the most pivotal moment also of the movie um, for how the rest of the sequences and the chain of events that follow. Um, so it's pretty, it's really cool for that, too. Yeah, sometimes we all need those what am I hell am I doing with my life kind of moments, and that's what yes. for him. Yes. Uh, Ben's favorite um, scene. I already, I already said my two. I just, uh, I remember Chris. Oh, uh, the one where he is, you know, he's with the two guys and he beats them up after, you know, staying completely cool because he's informing yeah, yeah, on them, yeah. and then he just oh, flips right. out. That, that was my favorite for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, oh, what was I gonna say just now? Oh. Yeah, I think this movie definitely, even though it wasn't commercially successful, influenced so much network television for the next like twenty years. I mean, they just went through this as their like Bible. Like, all right, just we're gonna do everything like this. You know, Law and Order is probably a great example. I've I've seen a lot of comparisons made to The Wire. People talking about this film, and I I was thinking that now, like this would be a prestige television show in the twenty first century. It would never be a movie, right? Yeah, get yeah. rid of the three acts, the three-hour runtime, just split it up, or you know, however long you can milk it. Yeah, ten episodes mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, which uh, let's yes. just say I, I'll support the three-hour at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that's uh, our review of 
Prince of the City. Um, Nick, as always, thanks for coming on. Uh, at kind of kind of short notice, kind of. <laughs> Kind of not. Yes, you mentioned we were talking about this for a while, but um, yeah, no, um, I'm really glad I finally got to see this film being on my watch list for ages. So um, yeah, great, great reason to watch it. And uh, thanks for inviting me back on the show. Of course, you'll probably be back on again at some point. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, we love having you on, Nick. Cheers, guys. Yeah. And uh, just to close out, um, mailbags, we haven't gotten one in a while, but we do have a special episode coming up soon. I'm not going to say what it is, but uh that person knows that's all I'm going to say, but yeah, mailbags to the searchers podcast at gmail.com like rate, subscribe, all that good stuff. Leave a review on Apple podcasts. If you are that generous, we, we thank you. Uh, that, that helps, but yeah, glad 2024 is kicking ass so far for us. We're doing, we're doing some good stuff. Uh, we got some good stuff, doing some good stuff in the, in the pipeline. All righty. We're out. to the searchers podcast if you want to hear more of our thoughts on movies you can find us on letterboxd ben at giant 13 chris at ziglet underscore mer and me at kevin chan find us on spotify and apple podcasts and on searchers film until next time people